0: Welcome to Coffee and Change, I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a US veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. Today's story comes from Jaylene Wallach. Jaylene is a holistic potential catalyst and a change management consultant who passionately helps people reach their truest potential while amplifying the chemical reactions of life. Jaylene is on an incredible journey, personally and professionally. She coaches and helps leaders and teams move through the world based on their values, strengths, and what gives them energy. Jaylene is also a practitioner of mindfulness and meditation and helps lead diversity and inclusion and belonging initiatives at her firm. Sit back and brew up a cup of your favorite warm beverage as you take in the learnings and lessons from Jaylene, a future leader of change management.
1: Thank you, Bill, for having me on the podcast. Um, I'm very excited to be here. Um, As colleagues who have worked very closely together the past year, or this past year, 2020, what a crazy time it's been. Um, It's been a really amazing experience to work together and to both work on change in this environment and in the organizations and clients that we serve. So, just as an intro to myself, um, I am a change management professional, a consultant. Um, with West Monroe Partners, and really focusing on um, things like communications, training, education for the different technology transformations that we do for our clients. Um, Beyond my work, I have a deep passion for um, really the individual and what makes people tick. So the reason I'm in this field is because I'm fascinated by people's relationship with their work with um you know how we spend most of our time and i love to connect with individuals um, make connections for individuals whether that be from person to person whether that be of ideas whatever may come up Um, and then on a personal note i'm just very committed to my own um, personal and spiritual development um, which you and i share very much Um, So I hope that some of that will come through in our conversation today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting how our paths crossed, even though we we worked at the same place. But I believe when you surfaced on my radar, and you'd probably correct me in terms of how long ago, I know it was a couple years ago at least, and you led the first corporate wide, firm wide meditation session. Do you remember what that was like? Can you talk about that a little
1: bit? Yeah, good times. Um, That was, I was a year into my career at that point, a year out of college, which was pretty crazy. Um, I have been meditating since I was 12 years old and discovered, you know, some books about meditation, books about Buddhism and Taoism, and um, really just found that it helped me from a very young age. Um, I, furthermore, you know, Just did not ever understand how that would come into a workplace environment and really kept it to myself. But it was really exciting to have that opportunity. So I was um, the chief of wellness in our L.A. office and um, was able to put on a for my meditation session that was sponsored and supported by West Monroe now. That was in 2017, so then now, this past year, was also asked to do that again, just especially given the 2020 environment. It was something that a lot of people needed. Um, I had also been hosting, since the whole quarantine lockdown, um, a regular meditation session for the LA office. I had done a couple that were by request, and then it was just really well-received, so I was hosting it Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, And from there, the wellness team approached me and asked if I could do um, that overall company wide one again. So that was really, really exciting. Um, I know the response was back in 2017 was really positive. There were a lot of, in particular, I remember there were a lot of mothers that said, This was really what I needed. And, you know, the reminder that I needed, the time for myself that I needed, um, because as caregivers, I think mothers are often giving a lot. but it has also been well received by a lot of people, um, and I'm just happy that people are seeing the benefit of it. You know, there's a ton of science and research that says that it's beneficial for our our minds, our productivity, our happiness. Everything. It's it's a huge key to just being the best that we can be, and that's especially important at work, right? Like the whole point of looking at people and their relationship with work and how we can make it better for employee experiences is. So that people can be the best that they can be, and meditation is a huge part of that. Um,
0: yeah, when you when you when I think back to that, with twenty seventeen, and you leading that firm wide meditation session, what's really interesting to look back on it now is we did that in a remote way. Like before, long before the remote was this this daily experience we understand now. And I'm curious, um, you kind of were ahead of your time, right? <laughs> In that uh, experience of leading multiple offices through a meditation session when people are in different locations, how was it then? And then, if if you don't mind talking about how the experience has been this year, because we are in an all remote capacity now, and we we have a lot of people benefiting from that, so I'm just I'm just curious from the the 2017 experience and the 2020 experience, how are the two different or the same?
1: So logistically, in 2017, people didn't understand the benefits of meditation. This was introductory for a lot of people at that time. Um, So I spent half the session educating people on the benefits of meditation and um, tried to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. And then actually, the second half was the meditation session, but it was a video I used um, an outside provider that we could all play. And I had representatives in different offices that were facilitating the playing of that recording and the sitting with that meditation session so that we could all experience it together. Um, but now that went pretty well, but then in 2020, um, I facilitated it myself and actually guided the meditation that was because I had had more experience doing that with the smaller sessions and also I think we need the personal connection now more than before right so um, back then we were in our own rooms located in each office in every region and were you know going through it with the video but also with the people around us and so I felt that it was more important to do it from someone that people knew or had a connection to this time um, in order to just really amplify that and amplify that social social situational connection for
0: for all of us. Yeah, I think you hit on a really important point there, which is the, the power of both in-person and distributed in 2017. I remember being in the boardroom in Seattle when you were doing that, and it was interesting because I remember feeling... For those of us that have done uh, a lot of this work, they'll they'll kind of know what I'm alluding to, but this sense of kind of shared experience, right? That resonance that you have with another person. and And looking back on it, this is kind of where I feel like you were ahead of your time, that aspect of that resonance going beyond just the boardroom I was in, that it actually carried over to Chicago, to New York, to LA, to San Francisco, to Dallas. Because in that exact moment in time, the people that were involved in that were all going through the same introspection, reflection, pause together, whether they knew it or not, they were setting a frequency. And then if you think about 2020, the impressive thing to me is the reach. So, so there's more reach because of technologies like zoom and other, and other things that made it easier to sort of onboard to the experience. But the other part that you hit on, which I think is really, really, really important, it was your voice leading it. It was not a third party facilitator. So I wonder in in if if you've thought about the 2020 experience, how that has, even though we weren't together in person, has that resonance in your mind still been carried out because it's the voice of a peer, someone they know, literally coming into their into their head.
1: Mm-hmm. I think so. And another thing, Bill, that builds on that resonance, I think, is so the attendee, the number of attendees about 9x from 2017 to 2020. Now, that, West Monroe has grown. So that is one factor that can be attributed to that. But West Monroe has not grown 9x. So it's the interest and the intention behind all of those people joining. And I think that could be felt. You, you know, you're on this Zoom call. Well, it's a Zoom call, okay. That's not gonna be as powerful as in-person resonance, but you see 200 plus people that are part of your organization, part of your tribe doing the same thing and logged in to have the same intention. I think that that is powerful across you know borders, across technology, um, and it's really important.
0: Yeah, and and I think one of the the other things that it shows it shows in twenty twenty is that with with intent and with I think a lot of coordination, you can really kind of manifest something. Even though we are disconnected, we're mm-hmm. still nodal, right? There's still nodes right. of of who we are, be it a corporation or be it a tribe, as you say, a community. You know, I know there's um, technologies you've used like Clubhouse and other things where people are connecting in different ways um, in a nodal fashion, despite the fact that there's there's only two dimensions between us. Can we still resonate? Can we sort of ring that bell on a nodal mm-hmm. on a nodal fashion? Um, the, are, you, are you seeing that in other ways above and beyond the mindfulness work? Are you seeing it in some of the work that you do day to day? Are you seeing it in some of the courses you've explored, um, things you've read?
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting because in order to make things a little bit more meaningful, we have to add that social element. So that's something that came from the course that we you know did together, the science of well-being. And they found that social connection is the backbone of happiness. It is one of the biggest things. When you look at the blue zone um, theories, that's one of the biggest factors of why people live the longest, the blue zone being areas in the world where people live the longest. Um, But there is, you know, one finding that was really interesting. And I'm digressing into an example, but we'll get back to the question. But there was one finding that was really interesting where, they just did it with strangers to see how powerful social connection is, even with people that you don't know. Mm-hmm. And so they did a public transit experiment where essentially they had people tasked with connecting with a stranger, either enjoying solitude or just doing what they would normally do on their public transit ride. And people who, um, or people were then asked you know, about their happiness levels. People thought that they were gonna be happiest in solitude but it ended up that they were most happy when they connected with a stranger. Um, another one that was done is people imagined, um, doing different things with another person and rated how they felt about it. It wasn't even a real situation. There was one example too, where they had people taste chocolate in different rooms. They didn't even know the other person was there. But they rated it higher, the taste of the chocolate, as better when they were with someone, even though they didn't know that they were next to each other in different rooms. So you think about that and it's like there's something going on here that we can't explain and that's powerful than what we could explain, right? And so when we're doing our work and we're thinking about everything that's happening in the world, everything that's happening in organizations, you know, for the past 10 years, change is happening faster than anything um, we've ever seen before. It will only continue to be like that. All of that is felt by people and it's shared. And now we're in that time where from our actual world, we're getting a lot more than we maybe normally would have or really have in the past. And we can feel that. You and I, were crafting, sitting here crafting communications. Mm-hmm. We're crafting... Um, you know, logistics related to training even. And you have to think about how all of this comes into play. And that has, that has to come into consideration when leaders are making their decisions. And, you know, we have worked with leaders who have made decisions, taking those things into consideration. We've also seen when leaders don't and how that is really, really taxing on people. Um, so I think like having the right social connection and the right considerations when we're thinking about these social factors when making decisions is really, really just critical.
0: Yeah, I mean it's so interesting. You're, what you're touching on there is essentially the quantum, right? I mean, there's there's mm-hmm. studies around quantum physics and and quantum entanglement. The study that you cite, which is so powerful, is that one about the tasting of the chocolate. That it actually tasted better when there was somebody in, in just uh, just on the other side of a wall, right? And whether you knew it or not, you know, without getting too to geeky into this, some of the stuff that I've read, which really does excite me, is that aspect that just by the mere presence of another person changes the organic structure of the chocolate. It also changes the organic structure of, of, of my body, the, the tasting mechanism of, of that. Mm-hmm. And I think science is just like scientists are just tapping into this understanding. And so if we bring it back to that original question around the nodes, Um, and the, and the human, just the human dynamic, the way we organize, the way we put things together, I do believe that if somebody with intent and manifestation puts things together or puts a, be it a course or a session from a place of felt, from a place of there is somebody on the other side of it, I believe it reaches further distances and it, and it achieves a higher resonance. And this Mm -hmm. is still such a mystery to us. Like we are barely scratching the surface here, right?
1: Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Yep. I think it, the intention relates to the resonance that is output completely. Um, One other thing that was in the course that relates to some of this is social situational support. So you know, we're, we're motivated in different ways as humans. There's intrinsic motivation, there's extrinsic motivation. Um, but there's also some other, basically I would call the mediating factors of motivation. And one of those is social situational support. And we're in a really interesting time of high isolation. But a lot of times we're not meant to be doing things alone, even when we're just doing activities together with someone. So we sit and we work in an office together. Um, you know, you do your chores with your partner instead of doing them alone. Like situations like that have a big difference in motivation. And right now we're all kind of on our own islands being our own support and being our small little networks of what, whoever's in our home or whoever's in our very small quarantine circle or what it, whatever it may be um so i think that that is another kind of challenge that we're facing um knowing that social situational support is so important but that also means that there has to be more intent to form that so for the class that we took together the the science of well-being i knew that i wasn't going to get through that course without a group so i formed a little group and we met every week and Thankfully, you know, you and others joined it regularly or else I really wouldn't have made it through myself personally. Um, but I see this happening. So you mentioned like the Clubhouse app. There are conversations that are happening that people are um, organizing to find like-minded inter- individuals and interact with them. There's this thing called InterIntellect, which is something similar. And I'm sure there are tons of these where they're hosting basically Zoom salon sessions so that you can discuss like-minded topics together. Um, and those things, you know, while we're more isolated and it's two dimensional, those things wouldn't have been possible or wouldn't have been sought out intentionally if it weren't for the situation that we're in. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's kind of a two-sided coin.
0: Yeah. And I, I think there's, I'm reminded of, of something that a, you know, a mentor of mine challenged me to think about and others to think about, which, what are the gifts that I think the the phrase of what are the gifts that COVID is showing us, or what are the gifts that a pandemic is, is showing us. And I think one of them, to your point, is, is there are more people connecting, granted, in a in a in a limited way, limited sensory way, but I think those connections per the nodes are increasing um, around mm-hmm. topics, around vulnerability, around a sense of loneliness, around self-care, mindfulness. These are all things that I personally believe were somewhere in the back of people's minds and now they're at the forefront and people are acting on them and it's allowing them to make different decisions and and move through their world with a different intent. Um, Is that, is that something that you're encountering as well?
1: Yeah, I think maybe because we see differently now, whereas before it was the back of our minds, but now it's at the forefront and needs to be addressed. Like our mental health, people see is impacting their ability to work right and it's it's impacting their ability to be a good partner or you know a good a good um, teammate or whatever it may be Um, so people are kind of seeing how it's all integrated and it's all connected more than before Um, and for me i think that's for the better of everyone Um, but you know it's interesting because we've reached a point in our society where, especially in the Western world, especially in America, Americans are the most unhappy individuals in the world. And we see that those numbers are just increasing towards more unhappiness. And so, you know, that's why the the theories of positive psychology and the lessons that it has to teach us are so relevant right now, because we can actually do something about it and we need it the most so i think you know i think that like this course the science of well-being i think all of the different efforts that are being done to really bring mental health awareness and wellness into the workplace are extremely beneficial and super timely if not a little bit late Mm -hmm. um but definitely important. You know, one example is West Monroe even has formed a uh, employee experience team. Now, you know, a lot of places are letting go of people, whereas we're, you know, investing in building this out, because we see that it actually impacts the work of our people, the well being of our people, you know, again, we spend the most time at work in our lives. So what are we going to do to make that as positive as possible and make people global, you know, citizens, so that we can be well-rounded and bring more to the world? Um, I think that that is every organization's purpose, or should be every organization's purpose, ultimately, um, whether or not they they choose to think that or not.
0: Yeah, I mean, it leads to fulfillment, um, which is a big, you know, a big debated term, a little bit because. I think every organization would say they want their people to be fulfilled. The challenge, and I'm wondering if, if if you might expand upon this, the challenge is fulfillment is defined by every individual differently. Is that accurate?
1: Perhaps experienced differently. Okay. Um, but, I mean, there are a lot of different theories of fulfillment, right? If we're looking at, an organization's role in fulfillment. I think that's one question that I'll start with. I think every organization, whether it be your employer or, you know, a hobby organization or religion, whatever it may be, has the power to provide some level of fulfillment, whether or not they choose to do that. Um, but I think people do experience fulfillment differently. So that's the other kind of question to explore. Um, I don't know. I guess I would, I would question what, what are the elements of fulfillment, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I think meaning, um, having something that you're doing that is bigger than yourself, uh, faith, whether that be in, you know, a traditional sense or just faith that things will work out and that, you know, everything is going to be part of some grander plan or purpose. Um, so, yeah, I think faith, meaning something bigger than yourself.
0: Does creativity reside in there somewhere or the ability to create reside in there
1: somewhere? Yeah. That's what's missing. I think you're right because it has to be from you. It has to be an expression. I truly think, um, in order to really feel like you are attached to it and giving something.
0: Right, and it, and it makes me it makes me think back to the to that course, you know, the science of well being, as well as you had mentioned the a course on positive psychology, which I which I started taking. Um, a little while ago, and I need to finish. Um, unfortunately, things get, as, as we learned, right, without, I'm doing that one without accountability partners, and it's a lot harder, yes. Jaylene, let me tell you, to do it solo, <laughs> to your point that you shared earlier. But I think about these offerings, and I wonder if more people are really thinking about the, about how fulfillment is experienced, as you said, as opposed to defined. Do, do you think that Things like the science of well being course or a course on positive psychology are likely to become more traditional offerings in places we normally would not expect to see them. So, case in point, you took the initiative upon yourself to say, I'm signing up for the science of well being course. You had accountability partners. I think other people heard about that. I've told people about that. It sort of caught wind. And maybe there's more people taking it now, you know, uh, kind of alluding to a similar experience you had with the 9x, right? The the number of people that showed up for the meditation. And then, you know, three years later, 9x that amount. Um, Do you see things like these courses being woven into the working world more traditionally?
1: These are courses in life, like everyone should get these courses or have this knowledge and be equipped with it at some point throughout life, I almost think at a very young age, um, I would love to see it to address your question directly in, you know, provided by workplaces in the workplace um, as developmental aids in the workplace. I think these types of things that work on you as an individual work on how you see yourself, how you see your life, um, what levers you can pull in order to make it better. I'm using air quotes for the word better, but, um, you know, it's, it's all comes down to perception. So that's why I kind of quote that better, but all of this makes you a better person and makes you a better employee. So that's where I think it's, it's important. Um, but then again, maybe the workplace isn't the right format, but, but it then makes me question, well, what does education look like throughout our lives? What does learning look like throughout our lives? You and I are very highly oriented towards learning and curiosity. So when, you know, when we're trying to expand ourselves, we go seek out a new course. And that's, that's what we do. That's not what everyone does, right? Now, here's just a plug for anyone listening. If you want to include this. Coursera has a ton of free courses since the pandemic. They've made a bunch of amazing information available for free. So check that out. But, um, but yeah, I think there are things that we think people need to learn, set skills. But I think that there's truly more power in understanding some of this softer stuff. Um, because the individual is always the change agent. Mm-hmm. And I'll just leave it at that.
0: Yeah, I, I would love to pick it up right where you just put it down. The individual is always the change agent. Um, we get that because we we swim in this. This is our, our livelihood. This is the work that we are honored to get to do. When you think about change and being a change agent as an individual, there's also a lot coming at people. And they're doing the best they can. So when you think about things now, what is happening now and how people are dealing with it. People turn to you and ask you probably a lot, <laughs> like, "How are you doing it? Um, what are the things that you turn to?" You you alluded to us both being the type of person that would turn to a course, turn to a book, um, turn to an article, turn to a podcast. What are some of the things that concepts that you're coming that you that you're coming to or pulling out from recent readings or things that you're listening to that that give you that sense of direction and fulfillment and Mm -hmm. fortitude. Frank, I think the word is fortitude that I was ultimately reaching for.
1: Yeah. Honestly, it took me months to come to this point, just speaking as from my own personal experience. Right. And I, I literally picture it like this. It's like, we are under a ton of stuff. There's a ton of stuff on top of us. And we're seeing it all happen. It's happening around us. It's on our shoulders. We feel this, right? It's in our chest. But I kept seeing messages in my readings and through, you know, just various sources that were starting to show me and help me to realize and come up from under and be on top to realize, you know, the real message is we are the light, right? We have to always be the light and, Contrary to what we feel and what we think and what we're conditioned to believe and operate in, being the light is actually easier than being buried. But we feel like, oh, it's going to take so much to clear all of this wreckage and to get out from underneath everything. But really, it's a choice in the moment of the present that we can bring the light to the forefront. And when we shine that light, it shines on others and then they're invited to bring their light to the surface. And so it's certainly not easy. Um, over time it, you know, it has taken me a lot of almost like trial and error to realize like, Oh, this can be a choice. Oh, this does feel better when I just choose to be in the light and express, um, you know, some more positive, sentiments or see things a little bit more positively that doesn't mean that we're going to bring toxic positivity into here we can still acknowledge that everything is what it is but it's also an acceptance of a yin and a yang it's a forgiveness of past and of whatever we see as bad forgiveness being you know choosing to just kind of let go which is what um marianne's Marianne Williamson's book, A Return to Love, teaches us forgiveness is not, um, you know, excusing someone of their guilt. Forgiveness is accepting past, surrendering to love and bringing that into the present, as well as acknowledging that there is love and light in every moment. And so that will bring you above everything.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, as you described, it's, there's a lot of heavy work that goes behind that, right? It's even, even sometimes being in discussions with, with folks and explaining the pathways of like, you're, like you're, you know, describing your realizations, your awakenings, your, um, your moments of aha. There's a lot that goes into that. As you said, there's a lot that's on, that's piled on top of us. Um one of the one of the things I know we've talked a little bit is around the power of sovereignty. Um, and you had mentioned a book to me specifically called The Sovereign Individual. We had a very in-depth conversation about this, and I would love to to sort of skim it here for folks that are listening because there's this really interesting tension I think that we're experiencing right now around sovereignty versus, mm-hmm. Um, isolation and versus compliance, you know, without getting into all of the needing to recap, you know, the pandemic and all the decisions we have to make. I'm curious your thoughts on on kind of where we're at now um, and what it means to return or move forward or show up or be present as a sovereign individual, given where we are in the world right now.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. So this book, A Sovereign Individual, absolutely incredible book written in 1997, republished in 1999, I think. Don't quote me on that. I'm not as great at numbers, but right before the 2000s. And um, it was written by James Dale Davidson and um, William Reese Mogg. And they're basically theorizing about what is going to happen and where the world is going in the next millennium. Um, And it's been shockingly accurate, actually. It's really, really fascinating. And so it's actually had kind of a resurgence right about now because we're seeing a lot of what's happening. They explain that primarily um, there's going to be a rise in the sovereign individual, people who are essentially free agents in our world. Now that can be economic free agents, right, financially free or um, really more so related to our own sense of being. They don't get as spiritual as that, but I interpret it like that. Um, And there's going to be a downfall of nation states and large scale structures. And so we're seeing that mostly also in politics, not just in business, but it's there's so much that they touch on. And I want to talk about some of the change in it. But actually, I want to reference back to what you said about tension. Um, in the Return to Love by Marianne Williamson, and that is a really her interpretation of a writing called The Course in Miracles. Um, she talks about ambitious tension. Mm-hmm. And w- ambitious tension is a masculine state now masculine, feminine, I'm not sure if your listeners are as familiar, but um, is not necessarily having to do with male or female. It's non gendered. It's just there is a masculine and feminine, there's a yin, a yang, and a yin. And it really just goes down to some of the qualities and attributes of um, what would fall into either category. And so this ambitious tension is more masculine. And we live in a state. Where we are told we have to get to our next achievement. We have to get that job. We have to get that award. Um, We have to buy that house, that car. We have to get certain things in order to live and to be alive. Think about that. That's silly. We are of nature we are of the earth we are already living and alive regardless of these external things but this ambitious tension now it does it serves us and we should honor it right because we we have great jobs or you know it kind of pushes you to get great jobs and it pushes you to make money so that you can live in the capitalist society that we live in but it also has basically been teaching us especially over the past really since the the industrial era, it's been teaching us that that is the way to be. But being is about surrendering, relaxing, and existing in that space. Achieving is not being and that's what it equates it to. So I just wanted to touch on that sentiment about tension and this ambitious tension, and tying it back to some of the sovereign individual concepts a lot of what's happening is this hyper-political environment, this hyper-economic environment where we've predicted economic models based on very strict, very structured, i.e. masculine plans and theories. But there is chaos. Like Nature is chaos and order, right? So the fact that we haven't taken that into consideration and we're seeing a lot of these models break, is a lot of kind of what the sovereign individual starts to touch on. And it's really, really interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean the 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 aspect of when when models break and when structures fall, without even judging it, right? Like take the judgment out of it for a second. It's information. It's telling us something. If you take the sentiment out of it, the emotion out of it, and you just step back and and, and look at it from as you as you alluded to, energy, right? Energy cannot be destroyed; it can only be displaced or moved. Um, you know, and I'm not a you know I'm not a physicist or anything like that. But and I'm oversimplifying it a bit. But that's the other part of this around the downfall of systems um, and structures. That its downfall and its and its debil- you know. De- when it gets debilitated, that energy doesn't actually get destroyed. We have an opportunity to put that energy into something else, to your point around exploring a potential other model, a potential other option. And when you do that, it always begs the question around sovereignty and autonomy. And then okay. I, I imagine there's probably some people, I will, I will cite You know, industries like higher education as an example, a pillar of an institution What does it mean when we've got numbers of institutions that are metaphorically crumbling? Those institutions were the granting powers of being, as you have alluded to, right? Of achievement. You cannot achieve unless I give you said parchment (laughs) with a whole bunch of masculine energy put into that parchment that says, you now are are worthy of earning or worthy of being. Mm -hmm. And just separating that, being in that ambition is kind of a revolutionary concept Mm -hmm. in our society. Yep. Does it, does it excite you, terrify you, give you hope all of the above?
1: (laughs) So, oh man, Bill, my personal slogan since I was back in college has been ambitiously striving for the most out of life.
0: Ambitiously struggle for the most out of life.
1: With a little rocket emoji. Okay. So like that's important. That's an important touch. (laughs) This was in my Twitter bio, my Instagram bio, like, and it's, it's been my motto and I'm just, you know, I'm starting to pick it apart and it's just so interesting to me because I have heavily identified my being with ambition throughout my life.
0: And I think the other word you used was striving. If, and striving, so, thank so you. there's yes. there's, two, there's there's ambition and there's striving. Those are two very evocative words. So keep yep. going.
1: and and striving is trying, right? And both of these together really sort of communicate that I'm reaching for something outside of me and reaching for a tr- achievement.
0: You're reaching and for putting that
1: part my. On. Yeah, and putting my entire being and energy into that. So what I've come to learn is it's not it's not really about that, right? It's probably 50% about that because everything's truly in balance. But that other 50% is about just being and believing. And trusting and having faith that I don't need to be constantly working on something that's going to mean that I earn whatever achievement I'm trying to get. Believing that good things can come our way and becoming a magnetizing attractor of those things. Way easier said than done again, because we haven't been conditioned that way. But you think about, you know, again, isolation and sovereignism, both of those are pretty related. If we're thinking about being sovereign individuals, we're no longer implying that we're part of a tribe.
0: Right.
1: But I truly think if we go back and think about the, com- the communities around us, that's where things can happen that are bigger than us individually. And that's where some of that, that I guess, law of attraction can come into play and in a course in miracles and in a return to love that she explains really having faith that some of that will come back around is what will open you up to miracles miracles are not crazy things that happen miracles happen when you're in a state of receiving Mm -hmm. and surrender and when you're constantly striving for the most out of life what i'm doing what i've been doing is i'm closed off to receiving I'm tunneling in one direction and closing off all the other doors when who knows what could be coming from any other direction that I need.
0: What you're talking about is transcending ego, right? Yep,
1: thank you, It's yes.
0: literally like that aspect. But, but to your point, these are muscles we don't have, Jaylene, right, like these are, mm-hmm. it, it, if I was the best little boy in the world, right, and i came up through society like there were things that i did that led me to more striving and ambition
1: mm-hmm. because
0: i think at the heart of who we are we want to be seen heard and believed in right i mean that's that's i that's the essence of what the work that, that you and i get to do for people is help them be seen be heard and be believed in and so because that's what we want but as you've described, we've been told the only way to do that is to reach and strive and win and be, mm-hmm. be awarded and allocated. And that's all we know. Like that's our, that's our brain muscle and our body muscle. And, and what you're saying is that tunnels us. And in, in that tunneling, we are so hyper-focused. Again, that's the word that you were talking about before, the hyper of this, all of this, that we are blazing by doors, and opportunities, and little miracles. I agree with you on the miracles part, by the way. It's not always something so you know, enigmatic. It's all these little micro things that we probably don't have time to see right? mm-hmm. that are the everyday miracles. So when you think about transcending ego and, and stepping out of that lane, like get out of the carpool lane <laughs> essentially is what you're saying. <laughs> Maybe even get out of the car entirely. <laughs> um, right. What does that do for people? How much work goes into it? And how hard, how hard or easy is it to surrender?
1: Extremely hard. Um, so I love that you brought up transcending ego because this morning I woke up with a thought from when I read A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. And I just wanted to bring that into this conversation. And you did. And that whole book is about Transcending ego to discover your own personal happiness, raise your individual consciousness, but also the collective consciousness. And his theory is essentially if we can detach from our egos, we can really create a new earth that ends suffering, ends conflict, and is more harmonious. Um, You know, similarly, A Course in Miracles believes that for love and professes that, you know, they say you're either walking in fear or you're walking in love. And this simple thing has changed my whole perspective. Um, I've been working for three months every week with a coach on figuring out how to surrender, honestly. Um, And what keeps me from that is fear, right? Fear that I won't succeed, fear that it's not gonna work out. Um, Even fear disguised as non-fear, right? disguised as logic and reason. Oh, that's just crazy. Why would I, you know, why would I not do that? Um, but I think that's probably the biggest, easiest, simplest key to surrender to love is just recognize, am I, am I in fear am I in am I in love? And also, is the love for me? Is the love for others? Is the fear for me or is it something that's been taught to me? and conditioned into me. Oh, you know, Susie, if you don't get good grades, you're not going to go to college and then you're not going to succeed. And then like, I mean, when I was 25 bill, when I was like, Oh, it's my 25th birthday. I wasn't homeless. Like, bye. I really am going to be okay. Like that was really my thought. And it's like, why would I be homeless? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. like why would I ever be afraid of that? It's catastrophizing. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't know, but I'm excited to see what comes my way in a, a greater state of surrender.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, there's a piece that as you're, as you're describing that journey and it's still ongoing for you. I mean, no, no question. I think it's a huge investment and it's a courageous investment, right? To, to have a coach and to work through essentially what is a surrender experiment for multiple months. Um, it takes a lot of courage. I think it also takes a lot of unlearning so mm-hmm. so I wonder if you've you've encountered that in your journey. And and also again to go back to the tension, it's gotta be so hard to be a lifelong learner and also to be exploring this unlearning.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How does that feel?
1: For me, it's mostly about unlearning my own limiting beliefs. So that is more personal whereas the more active learning i participate in is like knowledge acquisition um one of the best practices that we started out with my my coach had me do was what's your emotional home what does it look like what does it feel like what does it sound like go back to you know that young version of yourself what what did she learn where does this come up in your life? So, you know, as we're, as I go through my day, I'm like jotting down things that I'm like, oh, this, this doesn't make sense. You know, like I'm preparing for a meeting and I'm thinking, oh, well, if, you know, if I bring up this topic, then that's going to be really uncomfortable and we're not going to want to address that. Like, why would that even be the case? You know, it can be totally fine. And so from there, it's, it's more so just, like the process of becoming aware of those limiting beliefs, questioning where they came from, and then noticing where they happen in my life so that I can interrupt them when they come up and explain to myself that, you know, it's it's not going to be like that. And then usually I have like a mantra to combat it um, that teaches me something new because we have this automatic processing that's happening in our brains that's just happened so many times you can't even count how many times we may have received these messages in our heads from ourselves or others and we have to be very intentional about rewriting those messages for ourselves Um, actually one really interesting thing from the science of well-being course she talks about uh, the professor dr lori santos she talks about the default mode network and how most of our brain is just in automatic processing mode all the time running basically scripts in that default mode network. Um, You know, usually our brain is activating neuron pathways that have already been activated before. So it's something like, here, let me find this. It's something like, oh, I can't find the exact number, but 80 to 90%, I want to say of our Thoughts every single day are thoughts we've already thought.
0: Yeah, I think before. it's about
1: 80%. Yeah, that's wild. And so she talks about this default no mo- mode network um, in the context of mind wandering, and our minds wander 46.9% of the time. Now, what could it be telling me? You know? <laughs> um, so even when we're even performing our activities, you know, humans have an attention span of about seven seconds. So our minds are even wandering when we're doing things. 30% of the time that we're actively participating in something, our minds are wandering. And that's just a lot of time. And so one of the things that they say that is good for combating that, because you never know what negative thought patterns are in there and what limiting beliefs are in there that we're being told and that we're repeating to ourselves. So one of the things that combats that is meditation. And that is one of the best ways to basically hijack your default mode network. It teaches your brain to maybe at rest, don't activate all of those thought patterns. And it also gives you time when you're actually in the meditation to actively not think and not repeat those things to yourself. So that's a little bit about surrendering and reprogramming. That unlearning.
0: Yeah. And I think even, even you can hear the, you know, you can hear the vibrancy in your voice. It's still hard, right? Like you, yeah. get, you as you talk about it, you're like, believe me, this stuff is hard, you know? Um, but I, I also love that when you talk about the meditation and the default mode network, which I encourage people to look up more about this. There's a lot of science on the default mode network. And what's really interesting to me is you describe the med- meditative state, um, when you're actually not allowing those 80% of the same thoughts that we had yesterday and the day before and the day before to sort of take the driver's seat, um, the question becomes, what are the things that actually drop in? What are the things mm-hmm. that are actually in those doors, you know, that, that metaphor you gave before around tunneling, um, what are the doors that open when we're not taking the same causeway over and over and over again you'll be surprised there there will be things that drop in that are miraculous in some ways as in the sense of i was struggling with this problem i couldn't find a way through and boom something drops in and you just have a clear picture of of a choice you should make or a person you should reach out to or a word you should write down and you say to yourself i'm not even sure where that came from right
1: Right. And Bill, this goes to the meditation that we just did right before this. Can you share the quote that you wrote down from it?
0: Um, I believe it was, remember your truth is not the story. Is that how it goes? I might have to go back and...
1: It was. So, it's because it's so simple and so profound. Yeah. But then it also talks about that... Stories, the stories that we have and the stories that we tell ourselves are stories that we can play with. And this is so fundamental when it comes to unlearning, just realizing everything that we have in our mind, in our world that we think is reality is a story. And
0: yeah, that you overthink it.
1: That's true. Yeah. And we can choose to play with reality and play with those stories. So when we realize that that's the case, we can detach from it and we can play with it. I mean, you know, you can run your own day to day experiments of your reality to see, you know, I I, I do this for like meetings. I show up and I say, okay, what energetic frequency am I going to bring to this meeting and how is it going to change? Who am I going to be here and what's that going to do to the outcome? I'll tell you what, it changes a lot. Um, At the beginning of my career, actually, I don't think I've ever really told anyone this, but the first two years of my career, every meeting I would go into, I would say, I'm going to bring a leadership presence to this meeting. What can I do to be a leader in this meeting? And a lot of times that showed up as just my presence and maybe a question or two that I posed because I'm a junior in my career, right? I was first two years out of college. And what happened? I was promoted two years early and recognized as a leader. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying that from my own ego, but I'm saying it from the sense of we can play with our reality and we can very much show up as the person that we choose to show up as. And we can have that impact on other people. And that resonance can be positively experienced by others And also, therefore, create a positive life for ourselves.
0: Yeah, so the quote is, you're free of your stories. It's that simple. I mean, it's so simple and so profound. The concept that you're talking about, which is, you're free of your stories. Therefore, you can play with your stories. And you can try different openings. As you said, as you described so well, I'm going to show up to this meeting with one or two leadership thoughts or, or, or intentions. And I loved how you just described it was either it's going to be presence or it's going to be a question. And I believe that the energy and the resonance around questions is of higher frequency than around responses. Because just the way that we're wired, when somebody asks a question, and if it's a profound question, the, those listening, a different, a different thing happens in their neural pathways. They start to imagine, they start to wonder.
1: Yeah. And it's so much bigger than you as the person who asked the question, you never know what's, what it's going to spark in someone else. And it sparks a whole web. And that's so fascinating. Now, going back to, you said like, what goes in, you know, once we, once we kind of open up and fill in kind of that, you know, that other 10% or 20% of our brain that isn't the set thoughts that we have. So that's part of why I like to always consume new information because I'm looking at consistently replenishing that pool of information and making sure that it's fresh and that it's not always the same thing. Um, I also want to talk about just shifting gears, power, and um, how that relates to change. And you said energy cannot be destroyed, only displaced or moved, essentially, right? So that goes into power. And in the sovereign individual, they a lot of it is focused on power. And it says that we are in the information age, and basically power is going from these large institutions to the individual and that creates a whole different dynamic. There's a huge shift that's happening. Um, One, it's incredibly important for us all to understand the power that we have to influence others, like with questions, with thoughts and experiences and emotions. Um, But two, it goes to an issue of change, like what changes are we going to experience when we have this shift in power that's happening and we see we see this happening um the systems are no longer working for the individual let's talk about the electoral college since it's relevant right i mean we don't even have to get into detail but i'll just mention it um one of the things that the book says is i'll just quote it here the speed of change is outracing the moral and economic capacity of many in living generations to adapt. A transition crisis lies ahead.
0: It's exactly what we're in.
1: Yeah. And so what do we do?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it begs the question uh, around moral imagination, which, which even if we think back to, what The word imagination. When you hear that word, what comes to mind? Childhood? Yeah. Um, Exploration. Creativity. Creativity, for sure. These are things that, as you described, there's not a lot of room for in these systems that have been so Baked and rebaked and and re just we just keep shoving it, so yeah, shoving it into mm-hmm. the same structure and expecting different results to happen. And as you've quoted in the book, this is a call for moral imagination at this point, because mm. the crisis that people are experiencing is is one in which, as as you've as you've described. On a human level, we've expanded beyond the way we see ourselves in some of these structures and systems. Our problems have expanded beyond the way these systems were set up to address and solve. So if we continue to put ourselves back in the container and expect a different result to happen, we're going to go insane or we're going to die young. I don't know if there's any other path like, out of that. That leads to the question, what is the future of work? What what do we Mm -hmm. do?
1: Yeah, this is a good one. Um, So this is something that when I think about it, I'm not thinking, you know, you see all these articles that are specifically focused on, let's upskill our workers. Oh, AI is coming in, it's going to change the future of work. You know, let's outsource employees, like what are the right outsourcing models, things like that. That's not at all what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking what's the future of work. For me, it's what is it like for the individual? Again, going back to that concept, how will it feel and how will we make meaning? What is the role of work in our grand fulfillment? Um, Taking it a step back, thinking about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, our society is pretty well taken care of, right? We are working in the self-actualization realm for the majority of Western civilization. Um, We're fortunate and privileged enough to be concerned with those matters, but those matters do not have the same solutions as more structured matters of survival, food security, et cetera. Now, there is things like love, human connection, Like you said, being seen, heard, understood, those are at the bottom. People need that. They've shown that people need that in order to be developmentally capable as they evolve from baby to adolescent to adult. But um, going back to the future of work, it's really all about that self-actualization realm and about fulfillment. And I, I truly think that it's going to be more about the individual's relationship to the softer side of things, like we talked about in the beginning, um, to the emotional connection that we have with each other, to the creativity, which is very feminine, um, that we are able to participate in, um, It's going to be about human nature and about our um, connection with each other, about more of that emotional intelligence. We already know it's about emotional intelligence. HBR has been writing about that for like 10 Mm -hmm. years, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think right now we're in a fulfillment crisis with work. We have people in the workplace who are still operating from like a 1950s mentality Mm -hmm. where, you know, you go into work and you do your eight hours and you act a certain way and you be professional. Um, And there are certain expectations that are kind of outdated, frankly. Like for example, you know, you come in before the boss and you leave after the boss, just one small example. Right. But what's happened with the state that we're in now of work and the world is people are bringing their, more of themselves to work. And I think that's key, honestly. Um, When we spend the most of our time with our colleagues, we want to know them and we get better responses when we share about ourselves and we're vulnerable, right? Brene Brown talks all about vulnerability. And there are literal studies that show that leaders who are vulnerable, leaders who are participatory, leaders who are seen as a human and an individual, get better responses from their people and people experience their jobs differently. Um, I saw a case study that was really interesting and I can't remember what the source was, but leaders who express their own difficulty in learning something new or, you know, experiencing a change, the people who are reporting into that leader, actually have a better time and easier time experiencing that change and get to adoption sooner. What's up with that? Right.
0: To me, that's the, that's the gold right there. I mean, for as long as, as, as we've been doing the work we've been doing. Yeah. If you could sit down with a leader and say, Hey, this is going to be a, a difficult transition and, and an adoption. And if you show up and talk about that from a place of vulnerability and authenticity and genuine, your people are going to have a better time responding to it. Um, because I think mm-hmm. it's just what you're putting at the front of the room is the humanity is the saying, right. I'm, I'm just like you. I'm no different than I too, despite titles, despite tenure, we're all just trying to do the best we can. Mm-hmm. And and I think, you know, one thing you alluded to earlier is this aspect of we can't continue to solve the problems that presented themselves today with the way we moved through the world before. Right. that's what got us to where we are today. And, right. And it, that requires something much more unstructured, something much more creative, something much more... I, I almost say, yeah, give, yeah, exactly. I was going to say permission granting, but even that, see, again, that's where my mind goes back to the old system, right? Like somebody has to give me permission to, to give, to, to be generous, to say, try it out. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how much we just go back to those old systems, right?
1: Yeah. And I want to touch on something here and continue to pull on the thread that you're pulling on. So the other day, I just kind of went on a rant in my mind and also out loud um, <laughs> about basically these systems. And I'm thinking, okay, we've got rates of um, depression and anxiety through the roof. We're seeing you know, uh, therapy skyrocket, especially in COVID now, um, people needing psych- psychological assistance, and seeking it out, which is wonderful. Um, We're seeing suicides increase a lot, which is tragic. Um, And this trend has been going on for a long time. So I started to think, I'm like, okay, we've been treating people with these medicines, right? The antidepressants, which if you have a chemical imbalance, that's, you know, a a pharmaceutical drug that can rebalance some of your chemicals is probably a great thing. But I truly, truly think that a lot of people just don't fit into the system anymore. We're round pegs trying to go into square holes. And I don't understand. I'm genuinely angry about this. Why we're looking at people and we're saying, what's wrong with you? And we're treating people based on what's wrong with them quotes. And we're not looking at what's happening around us. That's not working. And I think people think it's too big of a problem to solve. It's too big to address. So let's, let's deal with the individual. Plus the individual makes money for the medical systems. Right. But, So, I went on this rant, and then I was introduced the next day, just divinely, to this book called Lost Connections, which is in the mail, but I've already pre read -read several summaries on this. And the author, Johan Hari, I think was his name, goes through and wants to discover what's the true causes of depression and anxiety. And finds, and this book is literally being considered as something that is included as a text in psychology medical school because it is this scientifically cited so these are scientifically validated and it explores how our world the western world has changed to the point where more and more people are depressed left behind and disconnected so it's called lost connections right the theory is that we've lost connections to family friends community we've lost connections to our sense of hope for the future to our that's our faith in the future right And we've lost intrinsic values, such as love. And so that's kind of the thesis. And he also provides ways that we can find meaning in work and community environment and oneself. And this goes back to a course in miracles and a return to love. It goes back to what we learned in the science of well-being and the positive psychology theories that a lot of these things are what we need. We need social connection. We need community. We need love, faith, hope. Um, And so, yeah, I just think a lot of what we're experiencing can be attributed to how those structures are no longer working for the individual and for society at large.
0: Yeah, and I think what's really important about your emphatically talking about this is (laughs) it is telling people who are listening and others I too feel that way, but I, I don't have Mm -hmm. a place to express it. I don't have a way to express it. And, and as you, as you were talking, it made me think of a movie you and I both have watched fantastic fungi. And I'm, I'm reminded of that for this reason alone. When we, when the networks we work in do not work anymore, we need to turn to other networks that have shown that they can stand the test of time, that they can, um, that they can, for lack of a better term, mutate to meet the needs of the Earth. And for those mm-hmm. who have not seen this movie, I highly recommend it. I watched it last Friday night, and it's taught me so much about where we come from and who we are, and the networks that exist. And in the, in that example, you know, it's the mycelial network. But there's so many lessons in the simplicity of things in the mycelian, mycelia, mycelial network, it's hard to say, that in their simplicity can be applied to the most complex item and idea. And we're just at the tip of this. It's kind of like where you and I started off with the discussion around quantum and entanglement in physics, quantum physics. I, I feel like it's on the edges of things that we've we don't know that we're actually going to get our most learning and our most valuable lessons. And, in, and to go to the edges, you have to abandon the center.
1: Yes, yes, you have to let go. A couple things. So it's also the mycelium network and these patterns that we see in nature, they're representative of something bigger than ourselves yet again. And the ego has us thinking, How might humans solve these problems? It's crazy to think that. Why would humans solve these problems? We are of the earth. The system that is happening is bigger than us. And it's more perfect, right? So I actually did the research recently for a forum on permaculture. And permaculture is basically design principles that mimic The earth's system so it looks at ecological systems and it says how might we design modeling after the ecological systems that are already in place that are already working and some of the thinking is this is permaculture as well as regenerative um regenerative um models as well but some of the thinking is that the Systems are already working. Like the, think about the basically the ecology and the broader ecosystems that are on our planet are like the organisms of our planet. Um, Similarly, the organs within us are like their own ecosystems. But we'll get back to that. So, if we take a look at basically healing those ecosystems, healing those organs, then things will fall back into place. But we've kind of reached a bit of a tipping point already, where you know, talking about the climate, um, we've done a lot of destruction. But but it does extend beyond the climate, right? Permaculture kind of implies um, a lot of nature elements, but it also takes a look at and has expanded into how might we apply this to economics, to financial theories and models? How can we apply it to business and our own day to day lives? And so it's really that return to nature and what can we learn from it and in the process how can we connect with it which will give us more meaning which will heal that lost connection and will take us out of our egos and put us back into the natural world that we're a part of with more harmony
0: it requires you to surrender I mean, you can't you can't go up against nature and say I'm gonna win. I just can't. I mean, what are you gonna do? Stare a tsunami in the face and say I, I got this? You're gonna go, you know, joust with a hurricane? I, I, I mean, I think not. So, one of the things that requires is complete surrender, and you know, whether it's through a pilgrimage or initiation or something along those lines, when people go out into the wilderness and they surrender over to it as you've described, there are a number of things that get illuminated. You, you, you start to see things in, pa- you see patterns that were there that you never saw before. And as you've described, sometimes in the patterns and in the networks, there are the answers. We just have to be willing to let go of what we think is the only place to turn to answers.
1: You're so right, Bill, because we have the answers. They're in front of us. It's simple. I go back to the question of what is the future of work and tying back to the lost connections and thinking about what's not been working and just having that mindset instead of being focused on the individual, you know, what's not working about work nowadays. And there's a lot, honestly, it's macro to micro, but you think about, for example, it immediately comes to mind to me okay, we're now working at home. This is easier and harder for some people, but I think about our consulting careers and the lifestyle that we're consulting requires with travel, right? And we wonder, we look at the statistics, we wonder why aren't there more middle-aged women in consulting? Why aren't there more women in leadership? Well, we have a steep drop-off at the point about where women would become mothers because who can be a mother which by the way is like the deepest connection you could ever have to life and to your own humanness and to love and then say, Oh, I have to go leave for work Monday through Thursday and travel and be away. That's inhumane, not even criticizing. It just literally is. And okay. So what's not working in that regard, right? What else isn't working? Having a, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. work schedule Monday through Friday is inhumane. And again, I'm not saying this in a way that it's I'm saying inhumane is cruel, but it's literally not the natural order of our being. Right. Who can sit for eight to nine hours a day in front of a computer for five days a week? It's not the natural energy. Now, people who are disciplined and are able to be very focused for, you know, eight hours a day, they do very well in our traditional structure, but it's hard for other people. And people sit there and they wonder, why can't I focus? I must have ADD, ADHD. Why can't I? And this is the same for schools, right? Why can't I get this done or be more productive? Or why is this making me anxious? I should go talk to someone about this. Well, again, why are we not looking at the structure yeah. and the system? Everyone's brain is different. Everyone should work at different times of the day. Everyone should work different days of the week. Yeah, And it should be flexible and natural.
0: What's really interesting about what you talk about going against the natural order, it also goes back to one of the things you said earlier, which is... Um, Disease. I have to remind people that the word disease is dis ease, right? So so it doesn't mean that somebody is plagued or faulted or whatever. What it means is ease, the ease with which you need to move through the world is the natural order that you're alluding to, Jaylene. Disease only comes when we go against that natural order. So if you step back and go super macro and we look at diseases and things that are making people ill, it's exactly what you're talking about, is when people are going against the natural order of something. Over time, it creates dis-ease. You are moving away from the natural ease of your calling, of your human body. It will remind you at some point. It will show up and say, something needs to change. And that is dis-ease.
1: Right. And should be that we can be in flow. Now, the natural order is chaos and order, right? And we will naturally flow between masculine and feminine, between chaos and discipline, um, between absolute chaotic creativity and pure focus, right? But we need to have the flexibility to do that. Because humans want to create, and we want to contribute and for some reason we think we've needed to build a structure that tells people what they need to contribute when to create etc and that's not so much the case now the point about disease or dis-ease just from a personal perspective the whole reason that I called up my coach and I knew her personally um but i said i called her and i said i know that you work on personal development and you work on the body she's a physical trainer as well as a spirituality coach um and my body was screaming at me i have chronic pain and i'm 26 years old like that cannot be the case right and and a lot of chronic issues right so I just got fed up and I said, I, I have to deal with this. I cannot go on any longer sacrificing every single day my own health at this age or ever. We shouldn't. And, you know, now since I've worked with her and since I have realized that I don't need to be a dictator to myself, I don't need to be an authoritarian dictator over myself. I don't have the same issues. I mean, sure, I I have legitimately, you know, diagnosed issues, but I don't experience chronic pain every day anymore. And that is is miraculous, right? And a lot of it was surrendering. A lot of it was listening to myself. And to your point, the body's going to let you know. It literally was screaming at me Jaylene listen to me and so let me just I want to share with you actually this is a bit of a tangent but I want to share with you a couple of the mantras that I've really been that have come out of me and I have been listening to so one is listen less to the ego the ego again serves us and we should honor it right but with my ambitious striving I have only listened to the ego. And when I don't listen to that, then I listen to the heart. And so another morning mantra I'm trying to do is tell my heart, tune into it and tell it. I'll let you take the lead. You lead me today. It's not the head always leading. It's the heart. And then another one is surrender the mind to the body something that I had been doing with my chronic disease was always trying to figure out why, why, why in my brain, understanding what did, what did I do that made me feel this? You know, what is happening that is causing this? It's not about the why it's about listening to what it's telling you and then responding accordingly. So surrender the mind to the body. And again, that also helps me lead with my heart more. Um, So those have been transformational for me personally.
0: Yeah. And some people might call those little miracles, right? Because it's just on a surface, it's, it's the order of a few words, but underneath the surface, it's completely transformational to Mm -hmm. how you are experiencing sensation, emotions, and intentions. And that, that in itself is where the power lies and as you've alluded to, which I think is really, really important to remind people, all of this is available to every single human being on this earth. It's all there for your own accessing. Sometimes we have to step out of the societal construct and step out of the carpool lane and step out of whatever those things are that are driving us and act to access it. Um, so I really appreciate you sharing those three mantras because they are extremely powerful and simple. And I I want people to know that you can access those by doing some of this work that we've alluded to and and spoken about, be it in self-inquiry, be it in reading about systems that are no longer working, be it in creativity and imagination and moral imagination, frankly. Yep. Awesome. Well, we've covered a lot. (laughs) no kidding <laughs> is there um is there anything else you'd like to share in terms of like maybe you know where I don't know where people can reach out to you or things that you're you're really following or um, things you'd want to point people towards uh, additional resources you've covered a number of great um, sources and books and obviously the courses you've mentioned but yeah let me let me ask if there's anything else you'd like to share or point people towards
1: yeah. I might have to like follow up with this. Cause I was thinking about this beforehand mm-hmm. and I was like, I know a lot of my thoughts come after.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I might just send you like a little sure. blurb. for And that I can,
0: can kind of just do like a post edit it, like a, yeah. you know, um, after the interview ended um, you know, Jaylene took the opportunity to do some, cause again, it's what we're talking about. We take the opportunity to do the reflection. And these are some of the things that came to the surface that, She wanted to share. Yeah, I think that would Mm -hmm. be awesome. Awesome. How how did this feel? Great. Yeah.
1: Super fun. (laughs) Good.
0: Good. It's the way it should be, right? Yeah. Um. Wow, that was a powerful episode. I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Jaylene Wallach. You know it's really interesting. I'm I'm just adding this as a postscript, but we recorded that conversation on November 11th, 2020, so 11:11, 11, 11, and we felt it was kind of important to start recording at 11:11 11, 11 a.m. So this podcast was certainly powerful. There was a lot that was shared in there from Jaylene, um, and I hope you go back and listen to. it again because there's a lot of wisdom in there. I also feel called to share that this episode is 55. And so for those of you that are following some of the number patterns um, and may have a friend or someone you know who knows numerology, you can inquire with them. But that's significant because the numerology number 55 is about independence with the freedom to explore new areas of the human experience and the essence of that number in numerology is about focusing on adventure and exploration of of new ideas. It's about looking outward, forward, and looking for new desires, new experiences, new adventures while being self-sufficient and enjoying time alone. So I think it's really interesting how this conversation led to so many things that Jaylene was sharing around those very topics. And really there's no way we would have known that this was going to be episode 55 when we recorded it on 11/11 at 11:11 a.m. So I just wanted to share that postscript with you and thanks again to Jaylene for sharing all of the learnings, the wisdom, the knowledge. I will include a lot of the resources she shared in the episode notes. So if you found this episode helpful, I encourage you to share it with your friends, some of your colleagues, maybe some family, and of course if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out. Thanks for listening.